Today's reading is Luke chapter 14, verses 7 through 24, the parable of the wedding feast. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person. And then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. The parable of the great banquet. He said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field, and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. Well, um, this sermon is continuing a series that we've done since the killing of George Floyd um, on biblical justice. And we're going to be you know, spending a few more weeks looking at this. And, uh, but th- this week also marks a bit of a pivot um, in our worship, because typically we've just been doing our streaming worship has been exactly the same almost as our worship services were um, before COVID hit um, and our last Sunday that we met together, which was, I think, the 8th of March. So, uh, but in anticipation of coming back together, um, we're going to be shortening our, shortening our services um, by a substantial amount, probably by about a third. And so my sermons are going to get a little shorter I'm sorry. Listen, maybe I'll do some bonus material. It'll be like your bon- you'll get your bonus, you know, your bonus material that I'll record for a later time. So the, my sermons are probably going to get cut like in half. That's just going to happen. And Matt too. And so, um, and so this is my last stem winder. Uh, so I'm making every, every single second of this experience uh, count. And it's also going to be a pivot too, because you may have noticed a theme in the passages that Matt and I have chosen to preach on about biblical justice over these past few weeks, and that's that they all come from the Old Testament. And so you might be thinking, well, okay, you know, they're going over these Old Testament laws and these Old Testament prophets, but what about Jesus? You know, give me Jesus, give me the New Testament, because the Old Testament, that's about the law. 
all right? But the New Testament, that's about the gospel and about grace. And the law is inherently about punishments and, and, and penalties and, and making judgments and all that sort of thing. People getting what they deserve. That's, that's the law. But the gospel is about grace and mercy and forgiveness. And, and, and it's kind of the antithesis of the law, isn't it? Because it's about people not getting what they deserve. It's about us not getting what we deserve in, in the sense of God's condemnation for our sin and rebellion against him. And it's also about, about us getting the, what we really don't deserve because of Jesus' death and resurrection. Eternal life, a, a relationship with God, unity with Christ and with one another. And so we can kind of see that, that, that sometimes we have this temptation to pit the law and the gospel against one another. You know, you know the Old Testament, the law, that's about works righteousness. But, but the gospel, as Martin Luther famously said, is about salvation by faith alone. Now, this distinction, it's not true. It's not true. And I believe one of the greatest uh, heresies of the American church in the 21st century dates all the way back to the second century with a fellow named Marcion. And uh, Marcion was a heretic who said that the God of the Old Testament was actually a different God than the God uh, revealed in Jesus Christ in the New Testament. That the Old Testament God was bad and the New Testament God was good. And so Jesus came to get rid of one and replace it with the others. And and so uh, Marcion, you know, he canceled the Old Testament. And actually, most of the New Testament, he only kept a portion of Luke and 10 of Paul's letters. And in fact, one of the, uh, one of the ways that the New Testament and actually biblical canon uh, came about and came to be sort of solidified was Marcion's challenges. He was throwing out books left and right. And, and, and so the Orthodox Church has said, whoa, 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 wait a second, what is going on here? Like Mr. Belding. And they said, we need to get the, you know, we need to make sure we keep the books in that we want. And so... Uh, well, few of us, you know, would be full-on Marcionites, and we would not put it in a stark of, of terms. You know, I think a lot of us um, who have grown up at, in the late 20th century, early 21st century, we have found ourselves becoming soft Marcionites over the years. We, we may have uh, committed, in, in the words uh, inspired by uh, Arrested Development, a little light heresy. Uh, <laughs> when George Bluth, the uh, main character, is in prison and confesses to his son, Michael, I believe there's a good chance I committed a little light treason. Well, there's a good chance in the American church that we've committed a little light heresy when it comes to the Old Testament. And so I do hope that one of the positive effects we've seen uh, of this national you know, awakening around racial justice for the church is a renewed appreciation, especially in churches populated by folks who belong to the uh, professional managerial class, uh, of the ongoing vitality and absolute necessity of the Old Testament as we work for justice and for the Christian life. Now, we need it in, you know, in the professional managerial class, but the, the, the downtrodden have never turned their back on the Old Testament like we did. They never said, you know, it's, sometimes it seems like God isn't too nice. No, sir. The down and out have always understood that if God is a loving God, then God must have the passion of a lover. That, that if God is really a loving and just God, he must hate injustice so much that he's not just going to say something about it, but he's going to do something about it too. Only privileged people can even succumb a bit to the temptation to cut themselves off from the Old Testament. 
the Marcionites, those people in that day, those were the elites of society who were attracted to him. The same thing is always true today. When we start cutting ourselves off from the Old Testament and God's calls for justice and his anger at injustice, we are revealing our privilege. And if we've ever done that or thought that, and Lord knows I have done it, then we need to hear this. You need to check your privilege. And so we're going to look this morning at Jesus' heart for justice. And uh, we're going to do that by looking in what I think is an unexpected place, these, these parables that Jesus tells about uh, dinner parties and rules for dinner parties. And, you know, one is kind of a rule for dinner party. The other is a, uh, is a parable about someone who hosted a dinner party. And that's where we're going to spend most of our time this morning because, you know, we need to understand um, from them this. That, that, that Christian justice, something that Jesus really brings to the fore in telling these parables, and biblical justice too, though, it, it means rejecting a world system, right? A worldview and a world system, a way of operating and looking at the world that is obsessed with the accumulation of status and privilege for oneself. Now, first, just to confirm that, you know, I'm not just imposing some standard of, of, of justice on Jesus because it's a fashionable thing to do or I need to somehow shoehorn him in uh, to our uh, sermon series. It, just to say that, you know, Jesus understood the work of justice was at the heart of his mission and his ministry. We can find that in a hundred different places in the Gospels. But just one, I think, helpful place, you know, not a random place, but a helpful place to turn is when uh, John was in prison. And so he sent some of his disciples to inquire after Jesus if Jesus was the Messiah who John had been talking about or if they should be waiting for someone else. And so he sent his disciples on this fact-finding mission to talk to Jesus about if Jesus was the Messiah. Here's the exchange in the scripture. It, it says, Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them. So this is Jesus' answer. This is his, his proof to John that he is who John thinks he is and who he says he is. Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news, pre good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. So John asks, are you the Messiah? And Jesus' answer, it's rooted in his work amongst the poor and the powerless, the lost and lonely. And so in other words, Jesus' work is work for justice. And this answer that Jesus gives to John, this here echoes the words of Jesus' first sermon at the synagogue in Nazareth, which themselves are echoes of words that we find in the prophet Isaiah. So even a cursory reading of the Gospels reveals that Jesus had an intense interest in vulnerable people. They were his top priority. Jesus was known for keeping company with the scum of the earth, tax collectors, sinners, and prostitutes. He believed that the kingdom of God was especially good news for them. He welcomed little children who, who were seen as miserable little urchins when his disciples tried to shoo them away. The hero of his greatest parable, arguably his greatest parable, was a, belonged to a hated religious uh, and, and ethnic group compared to Jesus' own uh, Palestinian Jewish identity. He touched lepers who, who ha had gone without human contact for years. He, he included women in, in his circle of followers who were excluded many times from the religious life because of their sex. You know, the mystery of the incarnation is first revealed to a woman to Mary. And the first witnesses to his resurrection were women. And so Jesus's life, his whole life was about justice. And yes, we believe that he will come again to judge, 
the quick and the dead. That's about justice. But we see in his concern for the rejected, marginalized, and vulnerable people, his understanding that, that biblical justice means expanding the circle of dignity to include everyone in society, not just the religious and social elites. In fact, it means inverting the pyramid, inverting the social pyramid about who matters most. We're going to see that in these parables. Now, we don't see this kind of emphasis on inverting the pyramid, turning the world system upside down anywhere more clearly than we do in Luke chapter 14. Now, at first blush, you might not see a clear connection with the work of justice in these parables, but I hope after we look at them, especially the long one, it's going to be abundantly clear that justice in the kingdom of God means that, that dignity and honor are offered to everyone, regardless of class, caste, or credentials. There's two parables. One deals with, you know, rules for guests. Don't put yourself in the most prominent place. But the next one deals with hosts. And Jesus has a lot to say to hosts. Now, to understand these parables, we also need to have an understanding of the role that dinner parties, banquets, feasts like this would have played in antiquity. Dinner parties were, were part of an elaborate system of patronage. Uh, patron, pa patronage and clientage is what it's called in the scholarly literature. And, and it still exists in cultures to this day, but it was especially prevalent in the ancient Near East. And so in the ancient world, you, you, you secured your status or you advanced yourself through these relationships. And these relationships were solidified, they were, they were built, they were renewed, they were strengthened, they were advanced through banquets, through eating together. That's where it happened. We still do that today. The power lunch, right? Eating with people is a good way to network, build connections, secure and solidify relationships that help you get what you want in your life. And so these were about so much more than socializing. They were about, you know, building your social network, advancing your status, and obtaining social legitimacy. If important people came to your house to eat, it meant you were someone. If you invited people over to your house, you were stamping them, giving them your imprimatur. You were expanding also the circle of your clientage. The people who accepted your invitation, who you were able to show hospitality to, they now owed you something. You were their patron. In Spanish, uh, the word for boss, patron. I never took Spanish, but I did watch Narcos Mexico, where that word is used quite a bit. And if you're the big boss, you're the patron patron also learned that from Narcos Mexico. So, uh, uh, Jesus' message with these two parables, though, is basically to heck with that whole system, that whole patronage client system, to heck with it. Because Jesus understood that that system had nothing at all to do with love or justice, and everything to do with advancing one's own personal interests and accruing more wealth, status, prestige, and power, and privilege for oneself. And if that's the way the world works, then justice is a peripheral concern at best. And justice means basically putting that particular hierarchical order, making sure the pyramid stays intact, is what justice means in a patron-client world. All right, so let's look at this parable of the great banquet. 
And so this banquet, you have to understand, this would have been a huge communal affair. This would have been a huge deal. And invitations would have gone out weeks beforehand. And the host needed to know, you know, how much food to prepare. It's like, that's why it's polite to RSVP, so that there is enough food for you when you get to the party. And so the invitations would have gone out. People would have RSVP'd yes. And then when the feast was ready, you know, which took several days to prepare, the servant would have gone out again and said, you know, come on, it's time, it's time for the feast. It's time for the party. And people would have come, and these feasts could last for several days. And so in this case, though, all of the guests, all of the invited guests, the three that we see who had RSVP'd yes, now make lame excuses not to come. And, and to really make an analogy to our contemporary situation, it's not like someone RSVP'd yes to your wedding and then didn't come, which, you know, is rude. And Amy and I were talking, and we think only a couple people did that to our wedding, and we don't remember who they are. So if that was you, you're, you're, you're free and clear. You never have to worry because we have forgotten who RSVP'd to our wedding and did not show up. But it would be as if uh, you invited someone over to your house for dinner. These couples came over. You're sitting in your living room having some hors d'oeuvres, getting ready while the, 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 the cooking's just finishing up. And then you come in and say, all right, everyone, it's time to go to the dining room uh, and let's eat dinner. And at that moment, people stood up in your, you know, in your living room, in your den, wherever you're hanging out. And they said, ah, you know what? Um, I really got to go and just left. We understand that, you know, that, that these, that's what's analogous to what's happening in our parable. That's the kind of rudeness, affront, insult that we're talking about. You know, it, it was, and in the fact that it's three of them, it seems like this is no accident. This is a, a cruel, cold calculation, a, a conspiracy almost amongst these guests to humiliate the host. And the excuses they give are incredibly lame. The first person says, well, you know, I got to go inspect a piece of property I just bought. Now, this is absurd uh, because in antiquity, you would haggle for months and months and months over buying a piece of property, a field, to grow crops. I mean, this is a long, drawn-out process. It would be like someone leaving your dinner party early and saying, you know what? We just bought a house, sight unseen. We need to go check it out. Lame. Second person says, well, you know what? I just bought these oxen and five pairs of oxen and I need to go test them. Now, again, this is a lame excuse because no one would buy oxen without first testing them because the oxen had to work in pairs. You know, they have to go pull the plow at the exact same speed. They have to get tired at the same rate. If they don't work together, you're not going to be able to plow a straight field, a straight line. They're going to be worthless when it comes to the job that you need them to do. So you always would test a pair of oxen together before purchasing them. And so it would be like someone, you know, leaving our aforementioned imaginary dinner party and saying, you know what, we just bought a car. We need to go see if it runs. And the last excuse I, I'm not going to give much dignity to, he says, I got a wife. It's a tawdry Let's just say it's parables after dark, the kind of insinuations that are being given uh, with the guy who said, I married my, 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 my wife. You know, basically there's a girl back in my room. I got to go. Which to a dignified host would have been an insult, an affront to his dignity. And so if you're in Jesus's original audience, you're hearing this parable when he told that he was actually at a dinner party with the scribes and Pharisees. If you hear this, you would have been appalled, appalled at these three men's excuses. And you would have understood them as attacks, attacks on the host's honor. And it would have been within the host's rights in these circumstances to seek vengeance, to get revenge, to respond to these insults, even with violence, because of righteous indignation. Their excuses that they gave, their rudeness, their affronts, their insults, they were tantamount to fighting words. And the host does get angry, very, very angry. 
But instead of seeking to get even, he does something else. He channels his anger. He tells his servant, go quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. So here's one very clear lesson. Uh, it's secondary to my main point, but I think it's also very important to note that, that, that one thing Jesus teaches us here about biblical justice is this, that justice channels righteous anger towards a constructive end. R- uh, justice channels righteous anger towards a constructive end. There is a temptation when we experience injustice to want to get even, get mad, get even, you hurt me, I'm going to hurt you. Let's tear it all down. And so I think in, in, in this age where there is a lot of righteous indignation and, and, and righteous anger, that we don't find ourselves giving into the temptation to channel that righteous anger into wanton destruction. So justice does involve anger at injustice, but anger has always got to be channeled into something constructive if we are not just going to keep perpetuating a cycle of injustice, which is a downward spiral. It is a vicious circle. All right. So next we see, you know, the hosts do what Jesus had talked about just before they're telling this parable. He said, when you invite people over, don't invite people who can give you anything back. Don't invite people who can become your clients, who can repay you. And so the host tells his servant, invite people who can give me nothing in return. The poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame. Right? These were people who literally had to beg for their subsistence. They are socially and economically worthless from the perspective of someone trying to advance socially, to increase their power, their prestige, or their patronage. They cannot do anything for him in that system. It's a waste of everything he has to give it to them. And once they all come in, there's surprising news. There is still room for more people. And so once more, the host commands his servant, go out to the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. Compel them to come in that my house may be filled. Now, when we're talking about people going to the highways and the, you know, in the highways and the hedges, I'll be somewhere working for my Lord. When we're talking about the highways, we're talking about the hedges. Those are people who are literally living on the margins of society. I mean, they are completely on the outskirts, uh, socially, economically, you know. These are people who are even in a worse state uh, than the, the, the people who came before, the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame. Now, over church history, this verse, though, compelled them to come in. It has been abused to justify religious persecution It's been used to justify, you know, coerced conversions. And it's been used to justify even things like the Inquisition. Compel them to come in. Now, nothing could be further from the meaning of this verse when we really understand it. The reason that the servant went out and he went to the highways and hedges and he had to compel people to come in was because people like this literally could not believe that anyone would ever invite them to anything, especially a banquet like this. They would think the servant was trolling them or tricking them or or trying to coerce them into doing something. If you're someone who never gets invited to anything and you know that you're not an invitation-worthy person, what are you going to think when someone says, come to the biggest party, the most important party in the village that this village has ever seen? You can understand why it would take some convincing and some coaxing to get them to come in. 
And so we see in this parable how Jesus' ethic of love attacks the world system that is obsessed with a pyramid, is obsessed with, with status and power and privilege, and Jesus attacks it at its root, and he flips it on its head. Jesus says that the kingdom of God means extending dignity to everyone in society, not hoarding that amongst the upper classes. And so Jesus' teaching here, it upends all hierarchies, racial hierarchies, class hierarchies, social hierarchies, which are all about zero-sum games. Think about it. Those are always zero-sum games when we're building, building hierarchies. Because if you picture society as a pyramid, there can only be a few people on top. And if you want to get to the top, then someone else needs to move beneath you. And there's going to be lots and lots and lots of people where? The most people right there at the bottom. Jesus' understanding of God's kingdom will have none of that. Jesus is going to invert the pyramid. And sadly, the church over the centuries, it's been slow, too slow to learn this lesson. Too slow to take these words uh, seriously and literally. When enslaved black people converted to Christianity, they were not allowed to worship with their white co-religionists, or they were made to sit in the balcony. Up in the balcony, well, the white people got to sit down on the main level. And that's, you know, racial hierarchies. But, it, you know, in early colonial America, one of the ways that they funded the church, once it was disestablished, uh, early America, colonial America, is you would sell subscriptions, pew subscriptions, you know? And the best seats in the house go to the person who pays the most money. They get to reserve the best seats. So the wealth, most well-heeled in the community sit in the front where you can hear, and, 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 and people who can't afford a pew, they're left to stand in the back not even sitting down. And adding insult to injury, if you had your own pew space, it's basically like you owned it. And so you look in some of these colonial era churches and people would build like little stoves in, in front of their pew to keep themselves warm in the winter because it gets cold in New England in the winter. And so you literally have, you know, wealthy people sitting in their pew box, getting nice and toasty with the poor people, you know, huddled masses in the back, shivering. And so I don't understand how Christians could hear passages like this and engage in practices like that. It doesn't make sense. How could they hear Jesus' words when you give a dinner or a banquet? Do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. How can you hear those words and still do those things. When we point our finger at them, we have three more pointing back at us and a thumb also pointing at you too. So you're really accusing yourself. Because we are still a society obsessed with accumulating status and privilege, especially through the pursuit of credentials. Particularly, we see in our own country's case from elite institutions. And I think our credentials arms race in this country, it's actually only getting worse. Our past five presidents of this country went to Penn, Columbia, Yale, Harvard, and Yale, respectively. And that's not counting the law schools they went to. And speaking of law school, eight of the nine Supreme Court justices went to either Harvard or Yale for law school. 
what's wrong with the University of Minnesota Law School, or University of Michigan Law School, or University of Texas Law School. Our elite colleges have amassed untold billions in their endowments while admitting fewer uh, and, and fewer applicants and never expanding their enrollment so they can appear more selective and thus do what? Confer more status and more privilege on their graduates because it's a zero-sum game. And you can only confer it, you can only confer it if you are participating in the pyramid game. So you got to be more and more selective. You have to amass larger and larger war chests. Now, I really enjoy this Malcolm Gladwell podcast, Revisionist History, because even when I don't agree with him, he makes me think. And he had this incredible episode uh, a, a season or two ago where he was talking to the president of Stanford University. Stanford University has a $28 billion endowment. And he asked him, he, he said, would there ever be a point where someone would offer to write you a check and you would just say like, you know what? Nah, I'm good. We got enough. We're covered. We can meet all the financial needs of our students. You know, we're fine. The answer to that question was, of course, no. No. There is never enough. I get letters from my own seminary, Princeton Theological Seminary, seeking to raise money from the student body. And you, you think that's nice, giving back. Well, Princeton Seminary itself has a $1 billion endowment. It educates 600 students a year. That's $1.6 million per student in the endowment. And I think I'm actually underselling it. Will they ever say enough is enough? No. And in, and in revisionist history, one of his most recent episodes was actually about art museums and how they collect, like there's an arms race to collect more and more works of art that gets stashed away in the basement that no one ever looks at. The Metropolitan Museum in, in New York, a great museum. One of my favorite things about going there with Amy was that it was a suggested donation when I was a seminary student. And my suggested donation was always zero dollars that I gave to the Met. I'm just going to be honest. You could go to the Met for free. This amazing museum. The great, that gravy train has left the station. I was going to say sailed, but trains don't sail. That gravy train has left the station. You now have to pay an entry fee to go to the Met. And the Met, even in, in the recent chaos, has had to lay off staff, you know, because people aren't coming in. And they have millions and millions of pieces of art sitting in their basement, and they won't sell one. Uh, Gladwell likens them to the dragon smog in The Hobbit, who is just sitting on this mountain, which has all this treasure under it. And the point for smog is not that he's ever going to spend this treasure. This treasure really has no value to him, but it's amassing this hoard of treasure for himself. That's why he exists. Because in order to be elite, in order to be the best, in order to be at the top, you have got to collect and gather more and more and more for yourself and your kind. There is no enough in that world. Because the system of this world, apart from God's kingdom, it's all about, you know, at best, paying lip service to the lower classes, while continuing to amass more and more wealth, power, uh, status, and privilege, and prestige for yourself. It's about saying, all are welcome here. You're putting that sign in your front yard. We're good Minneapolitans, so we're going to put all are welcome here. But we're also going to say, you know, not in my backyard, though. Michael J. Nelson and I, uh, we host a podcast called Like Trees Walking. Available uh, wherever pine, fine podcasts are sold for free. And Mike and I recently had the opportunity to interview a man named Chris Arnotti. 
Uh, and, and he wrote a book called Dignity, uh, which was published just at the beginning or end of last year. And it's a collection of photos and essays that chronicle his travels across what he calls back row America. And Arnade, he, he was a quant on Wall Street. He, he traded bonds and he worked for uh, Salomon Brothers uh, in the run up to the 2008 financial crisis. Which, uh, and Salomon Brothers, if you've ever read the Michael Lewis book, Liar's Poker, that's the firm that he worked at. And so Arnade made a ton of money. I don't know how much, but clearly from talking to him, he doesn't work anymore. So he crossed out what they call the freedom line. So he never has to work again. He made millions and millions of dollars. He lost millions and millions and millions and millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars uh, for his clients and was bailed out. But they never take it away from you once you've won it. And, and so he became, though, as he worked as a quant on Wall Street, he became disillusioned with his job. And he lived in a world where he was amongst people like him. They all had the correct opinions about society and, and poverty and how you help the poor through taxes and transfers and social programs. And, 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 and at the same time, he was completely isolated professionally and socially and residentially from, from poor people. And he was engaged in this you know, ever-escalating arms race for credentials, not just amongst his peers, but you know, through their children especially as well. And so he got sick of it and he was stressed out. And so he started doing something. He started walking all over New York. And going to places, the worst places, places people told him never to go, places like the Hunts Point neighborhood in the Bronx. And he did it mainly because he has this kind of impish quality about him where he does what people tell him not to. And what he found there were, were actual people, drug addicts, working poor, prostitutes. He spent a lot of time with them. But they were struggling for dignity in an America that didn't care about them. And so Arnadi, he, he came up with this divide in America. He sees it as kind of front row America and back row America. And this is he, based on what he saw as classroom behavior. You know, the front row kids are the kids who are good at school and they want to make sure that the teacher knows that they're good at school. And they're willing to play the game to get ahead. And the back row is full of the kids who, you know, don't always act the way they should. They're not always book smart. They're not the teacher's pet. You look at them and you go, they're not really college material and so Arnade saw America as becoming increasingly divided between the front row and the back row. And the front row, you know, it's white-collar knowledge workers. And they live in increasingly in a small handful of cities across this country. They go to college. They make six figures. They, they form traditional family structures. They send their kids to good schools with other kids like theirs. And they get farther and farther and farther ahead. And then the back row, you know, they live in the Rust Belt, those places that you want to be from but not live in anymore. They have their manufacturing job shipped overseas or more likely rendered redundant by technology. They earn low wages. They work in the service economy where their jobs are literally to service the lifestyles and the needs of the front row. They drive Uber, deliver DoorDash, line cooks, bartenders, ship shoppers. One good way to make this distinction is that if you're in the front row, you have a career. If you're in the back row, what do you got? A job. Now, as Arnade traveled this country, and he, and, he, and he spent time in the forsaken places like Cairo, Illinois, I know I said that correctly, Hunts Point, Bronx, Youngstown, Ohio, Bakersfield, California, he found something surprising when he traveled to those places, those back row places. He found a deep and abiding spirituality that was missing from his front row world. To put it too bluntly, the front row where he lived, it relied on science to look at the world, to solve problems. Whereas in the back row, people relied on faith. 
And he sees this as the front row cutting itself off from an aspect of reality. An aspect of reality, I would say, that they understand that they can't control because we're talking about God. And therefore, couldn't be bothered to comprehend. But everywhere in those forgotten places, he found two institutions that provided people with dignity. Now, one of them, I'm a preacher, so you know what I'm going to say. But the other one's going to surprise you. The first one was McDonald's. McDonald's and the church. Those were the two places that provided people with dignity. McDonald's was a place where you could go hang out and socialize or just sit for a few hours and people weren't going to bother you. Even if you were smelly or you looked homeless or you were strung out. And the churches, the churches he found, which he attended week after week whenever he was in a town, many of them Pentecostal or charismatic, were open to anyone who had the desire to come and listen. Not even change. There were no barriers for entry to this world. You didn't need a degree. You didn't need a good job or any job at all. You didn't need to look right. You didn't need to have your act together or be clean. People could simply come to those places as they were. And through attending scores of churches in back row America, Arnade went from being a convinced, he wasn't a smug atheist, but he was a convinced atheist, who thought, well, you know, religion is the opiate of the masses in a good way. Marx always meant it in a good way. Life existence is painful. So who could begrudge someone a little opium to take the edge off of existence? So Arnotti saw, he went from seeing religion as the opiate of the people, something that, you know, hurting people needed to make the world hurt a little less, to, to, to something else. He's not quite a believer, I don't think he would say, but he's, I think, on his way to becoming one. I hope and pray he is. And I bring this up, this whole story up, I bring it up because here I I see in this parable a perfect illustration of this front row, back row divide. The host first invited all the people from the front row and they rudely rejected the invitation. Now he didn't go out and plead with them to come back. He didn't fight with them. He didn't compel them to come in. He didn't look to the front row at all, but instead to the back. Now, this is an important lesson for the church in America if we want to work for justice, particularly those that are, are, are associated with the, the mainline or mainstream Christianity, like, like the Presbyterian church or even the covenant itself are. We're front row churches. We have educated clergy and congregants. I had to complete, complete seven years of post-secondary education to do what I do. I had to take Hebrew and Greek. I had to pass an ordination exam that I studied for for weeks to pass. I memorized so much stuff. Amy can attest to the hours and hours I put into studying for this exam. I made it through the credentialing arms race that was open to me because I was a good front row kid. Yeah, I might have been, you know, the class clown, but I was still in the front row. And I say that not to brag. Please, for the love of everything, do not hear me as bragging. I say this as an indictment of the entire system and process and of myself. It's by the front row, for the front row. And as front row churches, you know, we're focused largely on meeting the needs of of urbane, solidly middle class, professional people. That's who we throw dinner parties for. That's who we invite. That's who we want to attract. You won't find us in the highways or the hedges. And that's to our everlasting detriment. Now, I'm also not saying education is bad. 
Training your clergy is bad. Having a good job is bad. Far from it. What I am saying is that as a church and as Christians, we have so much to learn from our brothers and sisters who are ministering in and to and with and for and are of the back row. Yes, we have things we can offer in that work. We need to have a sense of urgency when it comes to joining in that work and learning that work from the people already doing it. Because otherwise, when it comes to God's kingdom work, we're going to find ourselves like, like the, 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 the guests who chose not to RSVP, who left on the outside looking in. We're going to find ourselves like the scribes and the Pharisees, people who know a lot about God, but they don't really know God himself. People who honor God with their lips, where their hearts are far from him. And so, brothers and sisters, I want us to taste God's kingdom banquet. I want us to sit at that table so much. And I want us to accept Jesus' invitation to join him at that great supper, which includes all and sundry. And so for us to do that, we have got to hear what he says here. We've got to reject the world's pyramids, the pyramid game, the pyramid scheme. It's trying to lay upon us. We've got to reject the world's system and its obsession with credentials and, and class that are a substitute for God ultimately. And instead, we've got to learn to be downwardly mobile. We've got to be rubbering shoulders with the people who cannot do anything for us except the greatest thing of all, teach us to be more like Jesus. We've got to stop worrying about where people went to school and instead wonder if they and we have been apprenticing with Jesus. And we've got to obsessing, stop obsessing about careers. And instead, think about character. You know, if we really want to check our privilege, we've got to check our hearts and see if we've actually invited Jesus into them. Because that's the only way we are ever going to understand true justice. And that's the only way we're ever going to know true peace. No justice that comes through Jesus, no peace in our hearts, our homes, or our communities. And so that, friends, I think, is Jesus' vision of justice from the front to the back. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Please pray with me. Lord God, we are so grateful that you yourself went from heaven into this world, which is infinitely greater than going into the highways and hedges. And Lord God, we cannot believe how amazing your grace is that you have invited wretches like us to eat and drink with you in your kingdom banquet. But God, might we never forget that we are still wretches that have been saved by grace through faith. We are no better than anyone else. And so God, help us to, to not pursue pedigree, but the power that comes only for you. Give us a passion Lord God, not for rising to the top, but going down to the bottom in the manner, the cruciform manner that you yourself did. In Jesus' name, amen.